Good morning. It's good to be back here again this morning. Today we are going to continue a series we began last week uh, about story. We've been, for the next four weeks, uh, well, for the next three weeks after this week, we're going to be talking about story. We're going to be talking about, uh, last week we talked about God's story. Uh, we talked This week we're going to talk a little bit about my, my mine, our individual stories. Uh, and the next week we'll talk about our collective story. Um, last week, uh, we kind of walked through God's story in, in taking a 10,000-foot pi- uh, picture of the entire Bible. We walked through the Old Testament to Jesus and saw how God was consistently and patiently walking alongside of humanity. We looked at how right from the beginning, after humanity fell, God didn't give up on us. Right? We talked about how he could have. He could have just, he said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. He could have just wiped us out and started over, but he doesn't. Instead, Right from the beginning, he partners with humanity, partners with us to begin putting the pieces, the broken pieces of the world back together. We looked at how God walked alongside the nation of Israel, looked at the promise and the blessing that he gives to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I will bless you. And then he says, and with that blessing, you go and you bless everybody else. We finished last week by pointing out how that charge has now been given to us in the church. We have been blessed because of Jesus with the Holy Spirit and God living inside of us, and now we've been charged to to share that blessing with the rest of the world. What's the point of church? Why are we here? We have been blessed so that we can bless other people. And we ended last week by saying the story of God is still being told, that there are pages left unwritten. We won't add pages to the Bible, but we do get to contribute to the ever-persistent story of God. We get to write a chapter in that story that's still being told. So last week we looked at God's story, and this week we're going to look at our individual stories. We're going to look at how, at how God has worked in each of our lives and why our stories, why knowing our individual stories is important to know as, we're fellow, as we are fellow story writers with God. So last week, uh, our text was pretty much the entire Bible. We did a lot of flipping. If you were here last week, you know that. Uh, This week, we're going to go in almost the entire opposite direction. We're going to focus everything on just two verses. So if you have your Bible, uh, flip with me to Acts 1, verse 7. Acts 1, verse 7. I'm going to focus today on Acts uh, 1, 7, and 8. It says this. He, he being Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has, has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So right off the bat, unfortunately, my agenda is exposed. Today we're going to be looking at individual stories. Why? Because they're intimately and they're closely tied to evangelism, to witness. And I'm going to really use evangelism and witness interchangeably from here on out. Now, I understand that probably makes some of you nervous. Some of you are ready to leave already. I just used the forbidden word evangelism. I get it. We don't like that. It makes us nervous. But wait it out. Because we can acknowledge right out of the gate that witnessing, that evangelism is tough, right? It's intimidating. For those of us who haven't had a lot of exposure to it, it feels awkward. It feels overwhelming. It creates anxiety in a lot of us, doesn't it? Honestly, it's something that our particular denomination has been notoriously bad at. Our numbers are awful. So my goal for today 
is to take some of the angst out of evangelism and hopefully help us all see that it's not nearly as overwhelming as it seems at first glance. We'll do that by beginning to look at this passage. So what does it say? It begins by saying, It is not for you to know the dates or the times the Father has set by his own authority. Now, it's easy to read quickly through certain parts of the Bible. Whenever you're reading, and, and especially when it's a statement of Jesus, you should always ask yourself, why did he say that? Why does Jesus begin this passage this way? And I think the beginning, that him beginning this way is actually very telling. Jesus begins by saying that knowing when the end is coming really isn't the point of what he's going to say next. It really doesn't matter at all uh, to what he's going to say next. Knowing the end or the times in which an end is coming, and that can be the end of all time or the end of your time, isn't really what relevant to what he's going to say. And there's a subtlety to that that matters to us, isn't there? Because often in modern times, we think of evangelism as the guy on the street corner standing on a soapbox proclaiming that hell is coming, right? Or that the end is near, or that, that, that something terrible is going to happen, so you better do something about it. And whether it's, whether it's that extreme or not, you might be thinking of the tactic, hey, do you know where you're going to go when you die? If not, do something about it. Hurry up. Sometimes we think about evangelism as fe a fear-driven thing, something that we have to argue somebody into, that we have to scare them into. Now, there, don't get me wrong. There is a place to ask somebody about their faith status where, or where they are, their faith situation. But I think this passage suggests that maybe that maybe uh, opening with a with that question is not the best option, because as we've already said, Jesus is saying here the timing of the end really isn't the point. He's saying there's more to it than that. Evangelism is not a, isn't proclaiming the dangers of hell from a street corner. So if that was what you were worried about, you can rest easy. So, if that isn't it, then what is it? And that's where we're going to spend the most of our time today, on verse 9. First, there's a declaration in verse 9, and then there's a charge. Jesus begins by saying, in the charge I'm about to get you, don't worry about the dates and times. That's God's job. Jesus says, before I tell you what I want you to do, I need you to know something. He begins by saying something amazing is going to happen. He says, you all, the apostles— and we know from Acts 2, actually all people, because God says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people. He says, you apostles are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Acts 1 is pre-Pentecost. He says that when you do, you're going to receive power. Now, if we brush over the first part of this verse, we miss a few things that are critically important to everything else we're going to talk about going on forward. Realize what Jesus is saying here. This verse is about evangelism, but he says, before you even start, before you do anything at all, you're going to need the Spirit. Because Jesus doesn't send the apostles out right after the resurrection, does he? He doesn't at all. Actually, if you were to go back to verse 4, Jesus explicitly tells them to wait. Jesus sees, sees the apostles as, after the resurrection, and he says, wait. Go to Jerusalem and stay there until I send the Spirit. Don't go anywhere, because if you're going to do this thing, you're going to need to be equipped. 
I want to make sure we all let that sink in. The foundation of evangelism, the key, the absolutely critically necessary part of it is the Holy Spirit. Jesus essentially says, don't even try to do it without him. Don't go anywhere. Stay put and wait. And that's a big deal, isn't it? But if we really understand what Jesus is saying, it's also a huge relief. Essentially, what he's saying is the heavy lifting of evangelism isn't done by you or me. It's not done by us at all. He said the hard part is done by the Holy Spirit. And that's a really nice burden to be lifted off our shoulders, isn't it? If you're nervous or anxious about what you should say or how you should say it, you don't really need to worry all that much about it because you're not doing the hard work anyway. If you don't feel like you have the Spirit with you, then wait, pray with somebody, figure it out. Well, clearly we have some role in it, though. What is that role? What is our role in all of this? Well, Jesus tells us here right afterwards. He tells the apostles, wait for the Spirit to come on you because you need him to do the hard work, but then what? He says, after you've received the Spirit and the power that comes along with it, then he says, then you will be my witnesses. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to be Jesus' witness? Honestly, I think this is the area right here where most of us get tripped up. This is where we make things way more difficult than they were ever intended to be. This is where we go out and buy the book, A Hundred Ways to Be an Effective Witness. Right? Go to, the, go to the religious section, you can find that. There's a detailed step process to get it done, whether it's a hundred or seven or whatever it may be. Which is what creates our anxiety. If it takes a hundred things to be a good, effective witness, well then that's a lot, isn't it? That's difficult, that's hard, because you got to make sure you get them all in a row. Even if it's only seven, that's still pretty overwhelming, right? So I want to spend some time to see if we can get a little bit better understanding of what it means to actually be a witness. And we can start by just asking ourselves, in English, what does it mean to be a witness or to witness something? Well, dictionary.com says witness is a noun. It's a person who sees an event take place. Right? I, I, witnessed, I am witnessing that we are meeting together on Sunday morning. There's a verb form to it too, to, to see something take place, and then there's an extra little bit that goes along with it, to serve as evidence to or testify to. So if someone were to ask me, did Ivan Rest Church meet this Sunday morning? I can say, yes, it did, and I witnessed it, and I will testify to it. I was there, I saw it. And we start to think about that, well, witnessing isn't so bad then, right? To be a witness is to see or experience something and then be willing to credibly share about it. That's what we do in court, right? We witness a crime. I saw John steal the car, and I'm willing to use my reputation as collateral to the truth of that statement. We'll go on the stand and we'll say, hey, as much as my reputation is worth, I will declare and testify to the fact that I witnessed this thing happen. I experienced something, I saw something, and now I want to tell you about it. The same thing happens with positive things. If you had been there, you would see how, how full of joy Sue was. Right? I could barely believe it myself, but she was overwhelming, and I can testify to that. Okay, so then is that the same in Greek? We see what it means in English. 
Now, honestly, I was surprised when I look up the word for witness in Greek. Because in Greek, the word for witness is the word martas. So, apparently the Greek letters didn't work. That first one was supposed to actually have Greek letters, but they must have not worked in the transferring it over. So in Greek, they would, should have, that's why it says martis twice. So in Greek, it says martis, but in Greek characters. The second one, the transliteration is martis like that, which you're supposed to see the difference there. And thirdly, in English, that is translated as the word martyr. That was supposed to have a lot more drama attached to it, but it kind of didn't work. So sorry about that. <laughs> it was supposed to nicely pop up one by one, and I was supposed to surprise you. It's martyr, but... <laughs> <laughs> Oops. All right. Um, anyway, but I was surprised because the Greek word for, uh, for witness is the word we translate into English as martyr. You will be my martes in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Nearly every time the word witnessed is used in the New Testament, martis is the root of that particular word. Now, that, that might freak you out a little bit. Because honestly, the first question that I asked was this. Now, is it really saying that, that Jesus wants all of us to be killed for our faith? Because isn't that what martyr means, right? You might even be thinking, I knew there was a reason I wasn't super excited about evangelism. Now I've put my finger on it. <laughs> but don't worry, it's, it's not saying that. But it does mean something really important. In English, to be a witness is to experience something that you know is so, that is true so much that you're willing to put your reputation on the line to testify to it, right? We just said that. Well, the Bible takes that one step further. To be a witness for Jesus is to experience something so real, you're willing to stake your life on it. In English, you're willing to, step, to stake your reputation on it. And there's, there's significance and weight to it. To be a witness of Jesus is to see or experience him in your life and be willing to stake your life on it, to be martyred for it. So we've gone over a lot in just a short amount of time, so let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus begins by saying evangelism isn't primarily about declaring the end of time. It's not about that at all. It's about letting the Holy Spirit do the work through your witness. Which, is, which we've just said is testifying to something that you've seen or experienced, and it has affected you in such a way you're willing to stake your life on it. Now, you may be thinking two things at this point. First, Brent, didn't you say this was supposed to relieve anxiety, not create more? Yes, it did. And you may be thinking, well, when's that coming? Soon. Second, wasn't this whole sermon supposed to be about story? Can we get back to that? And yes, we can, because those two things are intimately related to each other. Because if we're going to be called to be witnesses, in order to witness to people, we first need to have experienced something, right? Well, this is where your story comes in. If you're a believer, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and therefore filled, been filled with the Spirit, then your stories count here. I want you all to do something for a minute. Think back over your faith life. Maybe it's been many, many years. Maybe it's been just a few days. But think back over the time that you've spent with God. What were those moments in which you could see God clearly? 
Or maybe you could feel his love in a special way. Or you experienced his guidance like Angie shared earlier today. Or his presence. Or, the, or, or just the, the love of the community of believers. Think back over those times. Can you think of any of them? Because that's your witness. It's that simple. Those times in which you experienced God, when you saw him, when you, when you witnessed something, you share that with someone else, and that's your story. That's your witness. We talked last week about the purpose of Israel being to attract people to themselves and then point people towards God. If they had lived the way that God had asked them to, they would have been blessed beyond their wildest dreams, and the entire world would have looked at them and said, what's going on there? We want that. And the whole point of them doing that was to say, hey, yeah, we've got God. Come join us in it. That same principle applies here. People are watching us and asking the similar questions. How did you make it through that one time? In that situation, where did all your joy come from? How did you handle that? I couldn't have done it. And our answer each time is the same. Hey, we had God. Come join us in it. You see, at the core, witness is very, very simple. Why do you have faith? Well, let me tell you some stories about when God was there for me. It's that easy. The concept of witness is incredibly simple. But let's not pretend. The practice can be a little bit more difficult, right? There's a reason it creates anxiety for us, isn't it? Isn't there? You know, it's one thing to know you've experienced God. It's another thing altogether to articulate that to another person. That's the hard part. And that's true. We can see it throughout the Bible. There are good and there are bad witness. But I think we can wrap our minds around that a little bit better as well. Let's go back into just the practicality of a crime again. Let's say you witness a crime. Okay? Now, you and you're asked to be a witness in a trial. Now, let's imagine that this crime happened a year ago. You saw it. You were an observer. Happened a year ago, but the legal process took a very long time. It's a year later, and you're on, you're on the witness stand. But you haven't really thought about this event much since you saw it. When you're on the stand to testify it, if you haven't thought about it much, how well are you going to be able to articulate the details of what you experienced? It's going to be difficult, right? Especially with someone grilling you on it. The lawyer asked, what color shirt was he wearing? I don't remember anymore. Who was around? I, I don't remember anymore. What was the weather like? Were there birds? I don't know. I don't know. If you haven't thought about it much, those details slip away, don't they? You see, the, the event hasn't really affected your life much as time went on, and so the details of what exactly happened get less and less as time moves on. Now, on the other hand, if you had taken, a, if you had taken detailed notes right after the event, if you had thoughtfully reflected on it and made note of the important real elements on it, if you say, hey, this thing that I just witnessed matters a whole lot, and I have to make sure that I remember it so that when I tell someone about it, I'm right or I'm accurate, how much stronger would your witness be in that case? Or we can even go as far as saying, how much more confident would you be in what you're saying? My guess is you'd be a whole lot more confident, wouldn't you? 
Well, the same is true in your faith life. You see, each of us have stories. Some of us more than others. Each of us have witnessed God's goodness in our lives. But we have to admit, some of us haven't done a very good job of reflecting on it or recognizing it. For much of my life, I would include myself in that category. I'm sure there, there are people here that if they were asked, why do you believe? Why do you have faith? What has God ever done to you? There are people here that would probably struggle to think of a story to tell. I don't say that to condemn. That's not, what I'm, that's not the point. Because it was me at one point as well. But if it's you, I want to challenge you to do two things. First, think back on your life and find those times in which you did experience God, even if you can barely remember them. And do your best to pray over them and, and, and reflect on them so they can regain their significance again. And second, pray that God reveal himself in the present and the future and be ready to remember those stories when he does. Because friends, our stories are critically important to our faith lives. They are critically important to our relationship with God. I would go as far to say that they, they are the fuel of our faith. They're the foundation of our witness, and we need to make sure we inventory them well. Because how are we going to learn or grow in our faith if we don't keep account of the times in which God was felt most present to us? If we can't remember our experiences with God, how do we grow in our relationship with him? Now let's not pretend. This is something that requires discipline. It's not easy. Because not only is it easy for us to cruise through life unaware, we also have an enemy who's actively working to distract us from our experiences of God's love. When I was in youth ministry, I actually saw this all the time. So we, we would go on retreats. I was in youth ministry now almost nine years ago. That feels like a long time. I uh, was in youth ministry, then I was in there for six years, and we, we got, when we, we went on retreats often. We'd go out and we'd experience a lot, most time a lot of fun, but we'd also have some really significant and meaningful worship experiences there. And often on a, on a night or two of the time that we're out, there, there would be these moments that are just bigger than life. They're thick, they're heavy, they're, 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 they're indescribable really. Uh, if you're there, if you've ever been part of it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's almost like God is re it was there in a way that was thick. I don't know how else to describe it. It's hard to, it's hard to even to articulate with words. If you, again, if you've been there, if you've experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Students in those situations would, ex would, would, be, would experience some amazing, amazing things. They would minister to each other. They would get things off their chest that needed to be got off. They would work through relationships. They would be able to mourn together. They would be able to rejoice together. So much would happen in that space. But time and time and time again, almost immediately, they go to bed, they wake up the next morning, and almost immediately doubt would creep in. The, the voice in their head would start to say, no, that wasn't God. No, that was, your, that was you being tired. That was the sugar, because there's always a lot of that in a youth retreat. That was, it was the music or the speaker. They were manipulating you. They were trying to get you to feel that way, so you did. You were vulnerable, and they took advantage of you. Those thoughts creep into your mind almost immediately. And all of a sudden, your witness is weakened. 
So what I, what I started having students do, and I started doing myself as well, is before they went to bed that night, I asked them to write down their experience in as much detail as they possibly could. What are you feeling right now? What did you experience tonight? Write down those details. Take inventory of what you've experienced so that you can remember, so that you can add it to your storybook. And it's interesting how much longer those stories persisted. When we discipline ourselves to do that, to take account of our experiences with God, those times that are bigger than life, when we allow our experiences with God to permeate our hearts and our minds, when we make sure that we remember them in detail, then all of a sudden the biblical idea of witness, of martyr, starts to make sense, doesn't it? Your story changes from this thing that happened to, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm telling you, I don't understand how to fully explain it, but that particular night, the Holy Spirit was tangible. He was real. He was thick. He was inspiring. He was life-changing, and there's nothing that you can say that would convince me otherwise. It becomes something you're willing to stake your life on, isn't it? Doesn't it? You see, knowing your story matters. Knowing your, knowing your interactions with God are fundamental to building a relationship with Him. Knowing your stories will fuel your faith because you'll know what it's like to be with God and you'll want it more. Your, knowing your story will inspire change, will inspire you to be a better person. Because if you're able to be certain of your experience, which is the definition of faith, isn't it? To being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. If you are able to be certain of your experience, if God really was there in that time that you experienced, how does that affect your life? Is it just a fleeting moment or is it something that has meat and significance to it? You see, if we know our stories if we know our witness, if we've taken inventory of God's goodness in our lives, then all of a sudden evangelism isn't so hard, is it? If someone asks you, why do you believe what you believe, you share your experience with God. Why do I believe what I believe? Because I'll tell you one time this thing happened. That's my story. If you're talking with someone about faith who hasn't met Jesus yet, you share your experiences with God. Why do I believe? Because this happened. That's my story. You see, friends, evangelism isn't about having the right answers. It's not about having the right answers. That almost matters none. I want to say that again. Evangelism is not about being able to answer all the right questions. That has almost nothing to do with it. We know that because the disciples in Acts 1 didn't have all the answers. Peter isn't, doesn't even realize for sure that, or he doesn't recognize for sure that the Gentiles are part of this whole deal until Acts 10. We have nine more chapters before Peter even really goes, oh yeah, wow, this is for the Gentiles too. So clearly he does not have all the answers in Acts 1. The apostles don't declare for sure that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised until Acts 15. Evangelism is not about having all the right answers. If that's what you think it is, get that out of your head right away. Evangelism is about witness. I've experienced some things and I want to tell you about them which entirely removes the need to explain how that works. If you understand your story and you're willing to testify to it, to martyr for it, 
then the details of how it happened don't really matter at all, do they? When my person was sick and I didn't think I could make it, I experienced a peace that transcended understanding. No one is going to respond to that by saying, well, what's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit associated with that experience? It's just not what happens. That's not how people work, right? Even if they did, some, maybe there's someone out there that might. The response is easy, right? The response is, I'm not sure what the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is related to that. But I know it's my experience. And I want to share that with you. I can tell you it was real, and I, you can't convince me otherwise. Now, before we move on, I'm a person that does like learning and doctrine, so I'm not saying that it's worthless in general. There is a place for right belief and doctrine in our faith lives. As we move from needing spiritual milk, the apostle says, to spiritual meat, that's where doctrine resides. But what I'm saying is that space is not here in evangelism. We don't need to open by making sure everyone understands the ins and the outs of Trinity. And honestly, the more you think about that, the harder it is even to wrap your mind around it. Or, or we don't need favorite, Tony's favorite profession of faith question, which is the difference between infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. If you've been on council, you know what I'm talking about. Also, bonus, if anybody actually knows what that means, you get three points. Those matter. <laughs> they don't matter. No, we don't open with those things. We open by just introducing someone to Jesus like we would anyone else. If I was introducing you to my friend John, I'd say, hey, this is John. Let me tell you about that time we went to Colorado. We did that thing. It was great. It's how I've known him. I've known him from high school or wherever it may be. That's how we introduce someone else, isn't it? It's the same here. Here's my Savior Jesus. Let me tell you about this one time he... And you fill in your story there. You see, God's story is still being told, and we have the privilege of being a part of that story. God has promised to be with us in the Holy Spirit. He's promised that the kingdom of heaven is at, here, is at hand. It's here, that we can experience little tastes of heaven here and now. And because of that, we get to experience real and tangible interactions with God in our lives. These experiences, those experiences in which you experience God tangibly in your life are the foundation of your faith story or stories. They are the foundation of your relationship with God and they're, the, and they're especially the foundation of your witness. You see, each and every one of you has stories, have stories. Some of them are big. Some of them are small. But each and every one of them are important. So I want to challenge you to take time and reflect on and account for of, of your, and take account of your stories, the ones that have already happened and those that are still coming. Take time to meditate on them, to reflect on them. Take time to let them permeate your heart and mind. Take time to let them solidify in reality. Because if you do, I promise you it will affect, it'll affect each and every aspect of your faith life. It'll affect the way you see God because you'll, you'll be able to look back historically and see how he's been there for you throughout time. It'll affect the way you relate to the promises in the Bible because you'll be able to gain a bigger picture. And 
will surely affect the way that you share him with those in your life. You see, evangelism doesn't need to be a scary word because it's just reporting on your lived experience with God. It's not about having all the right answers. It's not about understanding all the doctrine. It's not even about being able to explain why what happened in your experience happened. It's not about any of those things. It's just about knowing your stories and then sharing them with anyone who God brings into your life. Because as we saw from the beginning, the Holy Spirit does the work from there. He does all the heavy lifting. When we know our stories and let the Holy Spirit take them where he will, then we can fulfill the charge that Jesus gives the apostles in Acts 1. He said to them, it's not for you to know the dates or the times the Father has set by his own authority. That doesn't matter, really, to the witness. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in wherever God has placed you, whether that be Jerusalem or Granville, whether that be Judea or Maine for some reason, whether that be the U.S. or Nicaragua, wherever God has placed you, you'll be, you'll be able to share your experience with him. You'll be able to testify to the good things that he's done in your life, how he got you through different things. You'll be able to witness and to, be, to stake your life on the experiences you've had with him. Wherever he calls you to be, But when you receive the power, when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, or in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we pray that, that you help us to remember the stories that we have. Lord, thank you for, for the stories that you've given each of us. Thank you for being there with us. Lord, for those of us who are struggling to find our stories, to remember our experiences with you. Those of us who are sitting here right now thinking, I don't really know if I have any of those. God, can you make them plain to us? Can you help us to see them uh, through your eyes, through the, through the, can you, help, can you help us to see you through whatever our experiences may be? And then God, may you embolden us, embolden us to share those stories with those who are here with us in this room and those we run into in our daily lives. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.